Take your Bible and turn to Esther chapter 7. As we entered the Christmas season, I was asked by several people, are you going to do a Christmas series? Now, it may sound odd to you, but my answer was, yes, we are going to continue teaching and looking at, teaching through and looking at the book of Esther. And there's a reason for that. I need to explain it to you this morning. Some of you, it'll be brand new information. For others of you who have been here for a time, you will understand what I am saying. The reason that we're doing that is because Esther points to the redemptive plan of God in Jesus Christ. In other words, the book of Esther points to Jesus. Now, that really should not come as a surprise. It does to a lot of people involved in a lot of churches. And here's the reason, because every book in the Bible ultimately points to Jesus. We, we really need to stop this kind of thinking that Jesus was a random character who somehow showed up in the 40th book of the Bible, that is the Gospel of Matthew. We need to stop looking at Jesus as plan B of salvation after plan A, that is living according to the Old Testament law, failed. Jesus Christ, if you will look, is in all 66 books of the Bible. By the way, Jesus himself said it. He told the group of religious people, the religious people that were there in the days of Jesus just did not get it like many of the religious people in our world today because they were people who looked at the Old Testament Scriptures. But he said to them very clearly, you, you search the Scriptures. Now, that might be a command, but it at least is a statement. You are searching or Guys, search the Scriptures. Why? Because you think that in them, you're going to find the way, the answer to eternal life. But you've got to see that it is the Scriptures, all of the Old Testament, that's what he was referring to, that bear witness about me. So every book of the Bible can be preached at Christmas because every book of the Bible has as its subject the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the book of Esther, I've said this before, just in case you're joining us, you're in the seventh sermon of this series on Esther, which is a part of a bigger series as we look at Ezra and Nehemiah, the closing out of the New Testament or the Old Testament. But Esther is not, and I've said this over and over again, and we need to get it again. It's not just a lesson with a moral at the end. That's the way it's taught a lot of time, along with other characters in the Bible. Dare to be a Daniel, be a David. He, he was a giant killer. Those, that's not what those stories are about. And so somehow we reduce the story of Esther into something like she's Belle from Beauty and the Beast or more in my generation, she's Buttercup from Prince's Bride. 
or Merida from Brave. No, she's none of those. She is a, listen to this, she is a real person with real weaknesses that as we have seen through the first six chapters, that in spite of her flaws, she is a type or a shadow revealing the redemption that's fully revealed in Jesus Christ. And that's why I chose to preach out of Esther at Christmas. She points to Jesus. She will bear a son, speaking of Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus. What is Esther all about? Saving her people. It's pointing to Jesus, who is revealed as the one who will save his people from their sins. And we just quoted this a few moments ago, that in time, as he grew to be an adult, and then he died on the cross, that we will celebrate at the close of this service with the, the Lord's Supper. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, who was to come as a baby to save his people, his people who were hopeless and helpless, just like his people in the book of Esther. Now, there's something else, and we're going to see the beginning of this today, all right? The coming of Christ was in two parts. We saw Jesus, and we celebrate him coming into the world as a baby. And we see him emphasized as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But you do understand that this book and this chapter, particularly of Esther, points to another aspect of who Jesus is. And we're going to begin to see this at the close of this chapter, and we'll see it in the, the ensuing chapters. That Jesus is coming again, and when he comes, he will come as the judge. What's he going to do as the judge? This is hard. For most people who grow up in a kind of religious environment where basically going to church, trying to be good, will cut it. But there's going to come a time, look, look at what John, and then on into Revelation, it says, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And then John in Revelation says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. We're not going to get into all of the aspects, the Bema seat of Christ, but there is going to be a great white throne judgment when the dead were judged. That's all of the dead. I, I, I was trying to get my arms, my mental arms around this this past week, talking to Jan on the way to church. It's, it, it is hard to, to embrace of all men outside of Christ who have ever lived from Cain on to the last one are going to stand before the great white throne. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the fire. Esther chapter 7 points to all that I've just said. Let's look at it. You've got your Bibles open, I hope, to Esther chapter 7. And so we will begin. I'll just read this, and we'll look at the, uh, the three points on the outline and, and just try to fill in the blanks, okay? Esther chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went into the feast of Queen Esther. 
I'm titling this first verse, and, and, and I've broken it down as I've tried to do every week into thoughts where you can, pegs where you can hang your thoughts on them. He, here is what it's about. Queen Esther, believing that she is where she is for such a time as this, continues to unfold her well-woven plan. Now, let's just stop and see where we are, okay? If you'll look back to the decree that was made that Haman engineered, then you're going to, to understand that right now, even though chapter 6, it looks like a little bit of something is happening, that right now things have not really improved for the Jews. They are still facing the command that they will be killed, slaughtered, destroyed, totally annihilated. This is genocide. And even though at the end of chapter 6, Mordecai was, was elevated, he was recognized because he had been overlooked, and King Xerxes had, had promoted him, had elevated him, and, and Haman was a part of that, he was humiliated. Actually, things are worse, because if you'll remember in chapter 6, Haman decided to move up the execution of one particular Jew. His name was Mordecai because he hated him so much. Now, folks, I don't believe that this is a, and some have made it this, a picture of racism. It wasn't that Haman hated the Jews and so he picked out Mordecai. He had a grudge match with Mordecai. There was some personal stuff going on between the two of them, and he just exploded that to the entire Jewish population. I'm going to kill Mordecai, I'm going to start with him, and I'm going to get them all. And so he decides in chapter 6 that he's going to kill Mordecai this very day where chapter 1 starts. And you're going to get a little bit of, a, of an idea about that. While nothing had changed for the Jews at this point, something had changed in Esther, if you look back with me, and I don't have this on the slide, but, but just look back with me real quickly to Esther chapter 4 in verses 14 and 15. Do you remember this? These are some of the key verses out of the book of Esther. In verse 14, Mordecai is, is, is encouraging her through an intermediary saying, it, it, she was struggling with this, guys, Okay. It wasn't one of those things where she heard what she needed to do and automatically jumped into it. She was, she was struggling, like a lot of us do, when we're faced with knowing that we need to obey God right now, but we struggle with it. And so Mordecai tells her the implications. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place because God has a plan of redemption, and that's what it's all about anyway. But you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then in verse 16, she says those famous words, if I perish, I perish. Wow. There's just so much here. I really could stop and just preach a sermon that is kind of a moral sermon, and it would fit. 
that every one of us comes to those times in our lives where it, it is time to do something. I'm talking about not just in the big, in the macro, but I'm talking about many times it's the micro. I need to do something in my own life. I need to repent. I need to confess a sin. Or I need to get something right in relationships, perhaps with a family member or my, my wife, or then it just expands out. And so that, that, that attitude of knowing that you have been put exactly where you are for such a time as this, and, and you're going to obey God even if it costs you your life, that's huge. But this was a struggle. This was a struggle. She finally came to the point where she believed it was her place and her time to act. Now, I find it interesting that in chapter 5, after she has made that decision, she wrestled. And she made the decision, what did she do? And, and if you look at, at how, she's, how she's viewed by the author, before chapter 5, she's always viewed as Esther. Chapter 5, she did something. She put on her royal robes after determining that she was going to do something, and she went in to the king, and she was called Queen Esther after that. And I see even in that, now it's a reverse, but I see what Jesus did for us. He was with the king. He was with the father. And yet he laid aside willingly his robes of righteousness to become his robes of deity, his robes of being equal with God, it says in Philippians chapter 2. And he laid those aside to take on human flesh and become a baby in a manger in the fullness of time. God for, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So that brings us up to chapter 7. Esther has a second banquet. She's already had the first banquet. And again, only the king and Haman are invited to this banquet. This was a part of her plan. And by the way, she really had no idea how this was going to turn out. Think with me for a minute. I, sometimes in reading stories like this, we forget that these are real people, real situations. And, and I, I just tried to think, what would I do if I knew that I were going to be confronting, I mean laying it out to the second most powerful man in the world at that time. Haman was Xerxes' prime minister. He was the second most powerful man. But hold on. She is also, in a way, going to be confronting the single most powerful man, Xerxes. And so she has to be very careful how she is going to do that. Here, here's what I see about Esther. She was willing to be the kids, here's a, here's a good word, advocate. Write that word down. Or you could write down the word mediator, okay? 
You know what that means? A go-between. Somebody who stands in between you and someone else. And she was willing to be the go-between, the mediator for her people. Just as Jesus would come. And he would willingly say, if I perish, I perish by becoming the mediator between God and man. So that's verse 1. Let's move on to verses 2 through 6. Here's the title of that particular section. Queen Esther asks for mercy for herself and her people and confronts wicked Haman and his murderous plot to destroy them. Now, let me just read through this, verses 2 through 6, and then we'll make a couple of applications. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, that seemed to be a favorite pastime of the king and all of his buddies. The king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of the kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, look at how carefully she shaped her words. This was not manipulation. It was just recognition of who she was and who he was and who she was dealing with. And if it pleased the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. And then she explains He could have been scratching his head about this time. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. And if we had been sold merely as slaves, men, and women, I I would have been silent. Wow. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, by this time his interest is picked, who is he? And Where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. (laughs) Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. I talked a minute ago about standing in the gap. Here she is. By the way, obviously we're we're taking this. She stood in the gap for her people. We're, we're, We're forwarding this to the fact that Jesus is our gap filler. He stands in the gap for his people by dying on Calvary's cross, right? I I can't help but at least apply this though. And please hear this, whether you're a a teenager or an, an older person. Look at what it says in Ezekiel. I sought for what? A man. Now, we can be generic with this. A woman, too. Equal opportunity gap fillers, okay? Seriously. Have you ever noticed that God has never needed a crowd He's looking for a man. He's looking for a woman who will step up and stand in the gap. He says, before me to the land. Now, he finishes that sentence and said, but I, sadly, back then I found no one. 
And again, I just, I have to look at that for my own life. Lord, how have you made me? How have you brought me to this place at this time? How am I to be a gap filler? Not trying to take the place of Christ, but in, again, and you start with the smallest circle and then you go out in my own life. In, in, in the relationships of my family and then the, the church and then the, the culture at large, the world. This is her moment. This is when she stands up. Do you realize when she says, my people? Did you see that? Do you realize that this is the first time, get this, this is the first time in five years of when she first became a queen that she has openly identified as being a Jew. Now, I, I don't want to make a lot of comments about why was she fearful, all the rest of that. We, do, we don't know. But the timing aspect is now she steps up and she has, has identified. And here is the king asking two questions that he's already asked. What is your wish and what is your request? And, and again, I see a little application here about us going before our king. Before Esther could even ask, King Xerxes said, I am ready and I am more than willing to fulfill whatever it is you need. And when I read that, that, that was a, a, an incredible encouragement to me that even as I go to my Father in heaven, that he is more than ready to meet the need to answer his request according to his will, not according to my particular desires, but according to his will. I love this out of Isaiah 65. It's, it's a great reminder for all of us. It's a picture of God and how he deals with us. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. I hope that's an encouragement to you today. So she answers each question. First she said, grant me my life. Then she said, Spare my people. Now, again, I read this and I paused and I said, I, I, I can imagine that at this point, um, the king's head is, is probably swirling at least, maybe. He's saying, what, what? What are you talking about? All of a sudden, you're saying you're a, a, a Jew? He might not have even been totally aware of what Haman had done. He just gave him his ring and said, go do it. So here's what she does. This is masterful. She goes back to chapter 3, and she uses the very words of Haman and his edict, his decree, to explain to the king. Look, look at it again. For we have been sold. Haman, I don't know if he was on the level. I don't know that he had this much money. Maybe he was that rich. Let it be decreed that they will be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver. Do you, do you, does anybody have any idea how much that was? That's 300 tons of silver. That's a lot of money. They were sold into the hands of their enemy. And then letters be sent to all of the king's providences 
provinces with instruction to, and she uses these exact words, destroy, to kill, and annihilate all of the Jews. Folks, really, what is going on here? Just, just stop for a minute. Okay. Killing off an entire population is serious. Would you agree with that? Is that all that's going on here? Not on your life. It is serious, but you've got to remember every one of the people who ultimately are going to be delivered is going to die again. What Haman was really after, whether or not he was, I don't think he was totally aware of it, is what every satanically inspired leader, whether it's Pharaoh or Herod or anybody else, in wiping out the Jews in the Old Testament, what Satan was really after behind the scenes was to kill the promise and the hope of the coming Messiah. That's why you've got to see what, what, what Esther did is not just a sweet little story. It is a picture of redemption and of God doing all that he can and he will do it in his divine providence to protect the coming Messiah. Do you realize that if Haman had been successful, Jesus would not have been born? Do, do you understand that? I mean, those are huge implications, and you got to be careful with the, the, the ifs and all the rest of that, but that's exactly what he's talking about. Uh, you, you don't need to turn over there, but I just wrote it down this morning. I thought, okay, let's go over to the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, and after the deportation to Babylon, these are the people, the, the generations of Joseph, Jesus' father, the lineage the father, it was Jeconiah, the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And if Haman had been able to carry out that edict uh, uh, successfully, Zerubbabel would have, would have been among the Jews in the kingdom of Persia who would have been killed and the Messiah would never have been born. Wow. And that's why I said almost jokingly that, that it, it, Esther, none of these stories are just sweet little moral stories that we just apply to our lives anemically. They're all parts of God's plan of redemption. So that the Messiah would be born. We don't know exactly what month he was born. We celebrate it this month, and that's okay. But don't lose sight of the fact that all throughout the Old Testament, God is doing a work to preserve that line so that Jesus, the Messiah, will be born. Now, did you, did you see the response of the king? He was absolutely livid. <laughs> and he responds, who in the world would even dream of raising a hand against my queen, and her people. And she points to who? Haman. 
And she says, a man hateful and hostile, this wicked Haman. Now, again, I said this last week about when Haman had to lead Mordecai around, I would love to have seen his face. I'm not sure I would love to have seen his face right now. He was absolutely terrified. But I got to stop. I, I hope this connects. <sighs> was Haman really that bad? What do you think? Okay, you know, I, I get, uh, I love this time of year because I get Christmas cards and uh, I get updates from uh, people that haven't seen or, or heard from in a year. And, and some of them give Christmas updates about their family. Now, I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek. I got a Christmas update letter from Hamadatha. You know who Hamadatha was, don't you? That was Haman's dad. And so in this Christmas update, he was just telling me about his family. And he stopped and he started telling me about Haman. Oh, Haman, you wouldn't believe the promotions that he's gotten at his job. Mm -hmm. He's got 10 great sons. They're all good looking. They're involved in this and that. In other words, my guess is that in the world's eye, except for maybe a little bit of a competitive nature, that's the way probably his dad would have couched it, that his dad would have put in that Christmas letter that Haman was really a pretty good guy. Now, you and I know better and I said a few weeks ago, we put him up there with guys like Hitler, Stalin, who else did I say? Darth Vader. And I was thinking, no, 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 Darth Vader doesn't get it. Let me give you another mythical character from the Marvel universe that he was more like. He was more like Thanos, who wanted with a snap of his finger to wipe out half of the universe. Have you ever been around anyone like that? Think carefully before you answer. Let me ask it again. Have you ever been around anyone like that? Okay, I'm going to go for it. Look in the mirror. It may be different in degree. Okay? You don't want to wipe out half of the universe. You don't want to wipe out an entire people group. In all the... But, but here's the problem. We start comparing ourselves with those who are obviously wicked. And what is the upshot of that? We end up thinking that we are good people. Now, let me let you in on a secret that you need to share with your family members, your kids, your grandkids. Please 
Students hear this. Good, listen, good people don't go to heaven. Let me say it again. This is going to be a shock to some of you. And some of you listening, perhaps. Good people don't go to heaven. Good is a degree of moral quality that we normally compare, again, with other people that usually are worse off than we are. Only the redeemed go to heaven. That's why Jesus came. There was no hope for good people because there are no good people. There's no one good, not even one. There's no one righteous. There's no one who seeks after God. And I did this just as kind of an exercise. I went to, to what, what really is needed for you and for me that, that we can be redeemed. And I thought of how Jesus was talking in, in, in Luke 13 about people who lost their lives And he said something, and I just thought, well, what would it look like if I inserted Haman's name in there? I mean, come on now. Do you think that Haman was worse, a worse offender than all the others? And here's the upshot of what Jesus was trying to get across to those folks. It's not a matter of being good. Good people don't go to heaven. I tell you, unless you repent you will all likewise perish. Do you think Haman was right to be terrified? Okay, we're back to the story now. Now let me just apply this. Do you think that anyone who is here today who is not in Christ, who understands what I'm saying, should be even more terrified to think of meeting the king without a mediator? Let's move on to the third point. Verses 7 through 10, Haman receives the king's wrath and the retribution due to him. The king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. I don't know why. Clear his his head, get some fresh air. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. Now, listen to these words very carefully. We we don't exegete all of the, the specific words, but there is something coming out of this. Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Ha! Understatement. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Was he in his drunken stupor? Did he just trip into the queen's lap? Or or was he just so overcome by, "I'm, I'm a dead man, he fell. I don't know. It's just that he fell on the couch which was a huge, huge no-no. The king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? That's what he was thinking. Could have been a convenient excuse, I don't know. As the word left the mouth of the king, 
They covered Haman's face. I, you know, that, that intrigued me. Why? I, I don't know, but many times in executions, they cover the face of the person to be executed. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, just happened to say, that, that goes back to last week, it just so happened, moreover the gallows or stake that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, 75 feet. And the king said, that'll do, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, the stake that he had prepared for Mordecai, then the wrath of the king abated. However you interpret what happened, Haman falling on the couch, it just sealed his faith, his fate. I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I had questions when I read through this. Why, why didn't, why didn't Esther at least correct him? He wasn't trying to assault me. I don't know. We, we just see the story unfold as it is. Now, here, here is the point, though, that I see from this. Haman sought a mediator. Are you following me in making the application, the jump? She sought a mediator in Queen Esther, but it's too late. Okay. Isaiah 55 says this. Now, I, I know the majority of you in here, but I, I cannot see your hearts. Never have been able to, never will be able to. I, I don't know what you're thinking right now, how you respond to the sermons that you hear. But I do know this, that there is, and this, this, this should make us tremble, that if you are here without Christ, if you do not have a mediator that is the go-between between you and a holy God, and all day long he's holding out his arms to you, he's holding out his salvation to you, according to the Scripture, there will come a time when it's too late. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him when he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The problem with Haman at this point is his timing is way off. I don't know that he had reached a place of hardness of heart, where, but, but salvation for him, it was too late. His timing was off. But folks, so was his sincerity. Just read. Just read between the lines. God is not capricious. He says, you, if you seek me, you will find me, but only if you seek me with your whole heart. I just don't see any sincerity in Haman. He's not sorry. He does not repent. Listen to me. 
I wrote down this phrase. I can't remember where I got it, but it is, it is super. Sincere repentance. Listen, sincere repentance is never too late, but late repentance is seldom sincere. You feel sorry for getting caught. I learned a really good lesson when I was a little guy. I don't remember how old I was. Old enough to know better. I, uh, I did something. I don't even know what the infraction was, but my mother, who really was the primary disciplinarian, and uh, she stood about 5'2 and about 120 pounds maybe soaking wet. Boy, she could throw a mean belt. And I had done something as a, as a kid, and I, I knew. And she told me, you know, go in your bedroom. I'm going to get your dad's belt, and I, I'm going to give you a spanking. I went in, and I dropped to my knees... the side of the bed, and I started praying out loud. I'm sure I had ulterior motives in that. <laughs> Help me, Lord, I'm caught, you know. But I, I, I started praying, and my, I could see out of the corner of my eye, my mother come to the door, and she just stood there. And so when I said my amen, she said, Marty, that, that, that is what you should be doing, repenting and, and, and saying you're sorry for doing wrong. And because of that, I'm not going to give you a spanking because apparently you've learned your lesson. Kids, guess what I did? I went out and whatever it was, I did the same thing. My mother said, go into your, bed your bedroom. I'm going to go get the belt. And I said, Mom, could, could I ask the Lord for forgiveness and she said, absolutely, you may. And I dropped down to the side of the bed, and I cried out for forgiveness to God and got up, and she wailed the daylights out of me. <laughs> and she said, I will not allow you to manipulate by insincerity. Repentance needs to be real. My mother never graduated from high school, but she had wisdom. That's what was missing from Haman. He was sorry he got caught. Can it ever be too late? I, I would hope that, that with what you have heard and seen some of these things up here that you at least would be asking the question. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I would be hoping you would say, uh, preacher, come on back. Give us, give us a little bit of hope here. Can it ever be too late? Uh, what about the thief on the cross? That's a true story. Deathbed conversions, true stories. Do you realize that that's the only time a story like that appears in the Bible? And the reason is so that no one will despair. But the other reason is so that no one will presume that you can wait until your final moments and then call out to God. It was too late for Haman. His execution was decided. 
And when the king spoke, they covered his face. And they did what is going to happen. Remember now, we're going to jump forward to the coming of our Lord, the second coming. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. God considers it just to repay with affliction. Those who afflict you, he's writing. Do you remember we studied this in 2 Thessalonians? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Just so happened, remember the story, Haban comes up and he says, uh, King uh, Haman just built. Now, it says in your version, a gallows. I, I've, I've alluded to this. Let me show you why I'm saying that more likely it was a sharpened stick or a pole. Because that's the way uh, uh, typically the Assyrians and the Persians uh, it killed somebody or when they were already dead, we're going to see this later on, that they put them up as, as a sign of shame. This was spoken of in Ezra in no uncertain terms when Darius gave a decree and said, don't hinder the Jews when they're rebuilding, okay? Don't do it because here's what's going to happen to you if you do. I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam is pulled out of his house, he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. And we go back to some of the pictures, and, and, and the, these are carvings, from that time period, I don't know if you can see it, but they show exactly that. I have absolutely no idea how Haman was impaled on a 75-foot sharpened stick. I just know that he was. But that's not the worst part. Physical death is never the worst part. A friend of mine, an acquaintance, discovered that he had pancreatic cancer two months ago. And he passed away less than 24 hours ago. It's two months. He's my age. And, and I think, you know, I think of all the things, what do you, Jan and I have been talking about that. What do you do if you know you've got two months to live? It's not a bad thing to think about. Because you probably ought to be doing those things anyway. <laughs> but I started thinking about the song, Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years. And Chuck has just started celebrating because that guy knew Jesus. Now, on the other side, a very, very sobering thought. Haman has been in torment. Someday he'll be thrown into the lake of fire. He's been in torment for 2,400 years. 
and is no closer to escaping that or coming to the end than he was the day he was impaled on the stake and went into eternity. Esther prefigures Christ as the mediator. And that's why we celebrate this thing called the Lord's Supper that we're going to do in just a moment. But Esther also reminds us that the other side of that, and this is the other side of the Christmas story, if we do not have redemption, then we have punishment for an eternity apart from God in hell. And so if you're a follower of Christ, a believer in Christ, we encourage you, even if you're not a, a member yet, or maybe ever, of our church, if you're a part of the family of the forgiven, we invite you to partake of the Lord's Supper today as we go through these symbols. And oh, my, my dear, dear friend, if you are here today without Christ, I pray that you would see the seriousness of your situation, your circumstances, your condition, and that you would repent and you would turn by faith to Jesus Christ. Lord, please forgive me of my sin. Enter into my life. Change me. Begin that work of transformation in me. And I beg of you, do that today. Father, we have now looked at the seventh chapter of Esther and some of the parallels as we will this next week be celebrating the birth of our Lord and what that all means. And Father, I'm so grateful that you've given us this time that, and how appropriate that as we look at the deliverance and the judgment, two different sides but the same Savior, that we do celebrate the Lord's Supper. Father, he willingly took the judgment due me on the cross in himself. He willingly took that for all who are his. And Lord, I pray today that as we look at this, the simple, simple elements, that you would help us to see all over again the incredible sacrifice that Jesus has done for us. And then God, once again, open the eyes and the hearts of those who have not yet seen, who do not yet know the Lord Jesus in all of his glory and all of his mercy. And we will give you the praise for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.